0: You're listening to The John DiPietro Show. Folks, how about this story? Jennifer Crumbly found guilty. Connection. Her son's school shooting. The mother in Michigan. This is a groundbreaking case. You know, I'm applauding this. Let's hear the Story from no, NBC. Alex, good
1: morning to you. We're not mentioning your last name for your own privacy reasons. I have to say, to have you here, it, it's uh, it's a privilege because what we ask jurors to do in this country is really, really difficult. It's very to sit, difficult. To sit in judgment of their fellow citizen, and that is something that you and your fellow jurors did. What was it like in that courtroom, having that responsibility and delivering wow, that verdict on yesterday? The jury. There was definitely a wait.
2: Um, I think any time we entered the courtroom, there was an un- undeniable weight on us. Um, we all took the responsibility that was put upon us seriously um, and I'm just one of 12 that made a very difficult decision.
1: What was the evidence that swayed you in the end? You said it wasn't an easy decision. This wasn't a on. Not easy down. at
2: all. Um, so speaking for myself, I know that each individual juror had their own opinion. This did this for one person, this convinced the other. For me, um, I just feel like Jennifer didn't separate her son from the gun enough to save those lives that day.
1: You felt she was the last person known to have had custody of the gun. Yes. And then somehow it ends up in his hands.
2: And I think the responsibility of securing the weapon then falls on
1: her. What about those text messages or journal entries or things that the jurors saw where it it indicated that Ethan had asked for help and that his parents hadn't given him that help. Was that persuasive to you?
2: To me personally, um, it wasn't as impactful as the evidence of her having the gun. But I know for my fellow jurors that um, the notebook played a huge part.
1: Mm. Tell me about her testimony it's um, Jennifer Crumbly took the, the stand in her own defense. She testified. What did you make of her on the witness stand?
2: Um, at the time, I tried to take her as she gave herself. Um, but once we went into deliberation, it became clear um, that she wasn't a super reliable witness in this case. Do you think
1: she helped herself on the stand or hurt herself? Would it have been better, in other words, if she hadn't testified at all? We'll never know. Yeah. Um, You you talked about uh, her testimony. There was a point where she was asked, would you have done anything differently? And she said she wouldn't have. How did that strike you and the other jurors?
2: It was repeated a lot in the deliberation room. I think that it was very upsetting to hear. Um, I think that there are many small things that could have been done to prevent this.
3: When you
1: went back into the jury room, you're the jury foreperson, I am. which is a, a big responsibility. And I should just mention again, there is no manual for jurors. Nobody tells no. jurors how to deliberate. Mm-mm. So how did you handle it? And how, was, was the jury immediately in agreement? Or what, how, how did it play out?
2: Um, So I took it more as a job of facilitation. I wanted to make sure that each and every juror to the best of my ability was heard and understood and made their point and we heard their piece. Um, And so that was the role that I took on as the foreperson. It was not immediately unanimous. And um, it was my responsibility to hear the concerns of those on either side and construct an argument either way.
1: Do you feel that the jurors wish they could have heard from Ethan Crumbly himself?
2: I'm not sure how much
1: that would have helped or hurt. All right, Alex, thank you so much for your civil service. Being a juror is not easy, and this was a very difficult case. Thank you.
0: You know what's interesting about that is, so they're at school, and the kids got the gun in the backpack, The mother didn't even say on the stand well in hindsight we should have brought him home in hindsight we should have looked through his backpack she took him a gun range before that the father got him the gun four days before the kid was clearly disturbed i i i think this is a breakthrough case where the parents whenever these things happen people say where were the parents and now we know where the parents were i don't think it's a bad thing that they're that they're being held accountable in this situation i actually think it's a good thing now another story it's it's so disturbing i can't believe that the mayorkis impeachment that that failed after all of that and and the republicans have no one to blame but themselves listen to the story this is so disappointing
4: killed a border deal they helped negotiate failed to impeach the homeland security secretary and couldn't even get enough votes to pass additional aid to israel overnight an embarrassing defeat for republicans the house failing to impeach homeland security secretary alejandro mayorkas over his handling of the border
5: on this vote the yeas are 214 and the nays are 216 the resolution is not adopted
4: A handful of GOP lawmakers refusing to fall in line, saying the party provided no evidence of an impeachable offense.
6: This is not a high crime or misdemeanor.
7: This is a policy difference.
6: And that sets a very bad precedent that will come back and bite Republican administrations in the future if we allow it to be said. Republicans thought
4: they had the votes, but then Texas Democrat Al Green, who just underwent emergency surgery, showed up, wheelchair-bound and in hospital scrubs, to cast the deciding vote. And moments later, a second setback for Speaker Mike Johnson. His bill to provide aid to Israel, also rejected. Johnson ducking out of the chamber, all of it capping off a chaotic 24 hours on Capitol Hill. With Republicans also backing away from a bipartisan border deal, their own party helped negotiate.
6: I mean, it's actually our side that wanted to tackle the border issue. We started it.
4: That deal would have also provided aid to Israel and Ukraine. With $20 billion in border security, the most sweeping reform in decades.
6: We all see that there's a problem. Let's all agree that we need to do something.
4: It's the kind of package Johnson said he wanted for months. You said a few months ago that you wanted to see a bipartisan agreement on border security and additional aid to Ukraine. Senators said that they did that.
5: They did not send us a border security measure. They didn't.
4: After Donald Trump started bashing the compromise, Johnson declared it dead on arrival.
6: It's time for Republicans in the Congress to show a little courage, to show a little spine, to make it clear to the American people
7: that you work for them, not for anyone else.
4: So as for where things stand this morning, Senate Democrats will force two votes, one on that package, which is expected to fail, another one with just additional aid to both Israel and Ukraine. House Speaker Mike Johnson is vowing to hold another vote to try to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary in the coming days. And as for Trump, well, he is celebrating the news that that border deal is dead. Of course, he wants to run on immigration in November,
6: Robin. And Rachel, we know that Trump is still the clear frontrunner in the Republican primary
4: clear and Nikki Haley decided to compete in the Nevada Republican primary. Donald Trump was not even on the ballot, and she still lost, with most voters deciding not to go with a candidate at all. Of course, the major contest for delegates is tomorrow for the caucuses, where Trump is the only candidate competing in that contest. And this morning, we are learning about a major shakeup within the RNC. Sources tell us that the chair, Ronna McDaniel, is expected to resign after the South Carolina primary. We were told this is a decision that she has discussed directly with Donald Trump. Robin.
0: All right. Folks, you're listening to The John DiPietro Show. AJ, drywall, plaster, home improvement. Call them today for a free quote. You can also find them on Facebook, 401-323-9252. 323-9252 AJ drywall plasters home improvement frame to finish basements what a difference it will make in your basement acoustic ceilings look how beautiful your ceiling could be new homes additions also commercial rehabs painting remodeling contact them today it's a family run business AJ drywall plaster home improvements call for a free quote what a difference they'll make in your home your ceilings floors basements 401-323-9252 what a difference beautiful walls and ceilings 401-323-9252 you can also find them on facebook it's aj drywall plaster and home improvements for your home or business You're listening to The John DePietro Show. Well, I've talked about the effects of illegal immigration, and now it's going into different communities. How about uh, in Cranston, where a young girl, 14 years old, a Spanish-speaking man, tried to grab her? Let's pick up the report from Channel 12, WPRI, Cranston Police have released surveillance cameras of the individual, no doubt, an illegal. Listen to this report. I think they have reported a Matt Paddock. Listen to this
3: they want you to know.
0: Hmm.
6: Shannon, according to major Todd Patalano, a fourteen year old girl was walking to school when she was approached by the man who made alarming statements and then grabbed
5: her by the arm. We don't know who he is or where he is, so we need the public's help, and that's why we provided that photo of him.
6: An unnerving incident happening Friday morning in the city of Cranston. According to Major Todd Patilano, a 14-year-old girl was walking to school when all of a sudden she was approached by this man outside of the track at Bain Middle School.
5: He approached her and asked her that, uh, where she was going and stated that you are really pretty. Um, You have a nice body.
6: Patilano says the young girl told the man she was 14. According to police, she was met with this response.
5: He stated that's okay, and at one point he grabbed her arm. But what's important to note is the comments that he did make to her are certainly alarming to us and what his motive was. Police say the girl then ran to a crossing guard for help.
6: The man then took off towards Gansett Avenue, running into a nearby neighborhood towards Cranston
5: Street this individual was waiting there for a young female to walk by and then commenting to her and then actually grabbing her arm is something that's very concerning and this is why we need to locate this individual. Major Patilano says the police's detective
6: unit and school resource officers are monitoring all schools and keeping their eyes to the
5: streets in search of the individual, sharing safety tips for those who walk to school. Always stay visible, stay on main roads, try to walk to school with someone else Obviously, if you have a cell phone, make sure you have that with you.
6: Anyone who may know the identity of the person of interest are asked to call Cranston's detective division. We have that number over on our website. Reporting live in Cranston tonight, Matt Paddock, 12 News.
0: Now, Cranston Street is packed with illegals, and there's even an apartment where I, I would imagine the police know about it, but there's, there's like 10 to 12 all illegal young men, guys that are living there. Now, I also want to remind people uh, in different parts of the country, especially like the Dominican, in Guatemala, in other countries, they go after very young girls. So when she said, well, I'm only 14, and he said, that's okay, their culture, uh, you've had members of the Red Sox, you've had professional athletes that get in trouble because they date. Girls that are 16 years old, even younger. So in their culture, that's that's not our culture. But look at, as I've talked about, look at the dangers that Governor McKee and Matos are bringing into Rhode Island. Now these are policies where let's give them driver's licenses. Let's make the state a sanctuary state. Between that and the open drug policy, the legalization of illicit drugs. As I have told you, this stuff, it's its all moving out now into the suburbs. Now, where that is in Cranston, that's not a bad section of Cranston. Now, granted, it, I, I'm very familiar with it. Um, it's right near Cranston Street. But Bain Middle School is considered, you know, that's, that's not like a rough and tumble type of school. At least that wasn't the reputation. In broad daylight now, in a section of Cranston, and he started off speaking spanish you have the police saying don't walk alone you know what 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 was going to happen when he went to go grab her arm so this is but look at what our police are up against this is not someone he's not he's not from here that's not an american that is someone he was standing there early in the morning looking for a young girl to grab and most likely sexually assault. That's what we're dealing with right now. And again, these are the policies of Governor McKee, Lieutenant Governor Matos, that they continue to lure people in here. The people that they're bringing in are not people that are adding to your quality of life. They come from foreign lands. They don't belong here. They're not residents. They're putting you and all of us at risk. You're listening to The John DiPietro Show. (laughs) your oil needs make it Henry oil call Henry oil today 401-521-0200 reliable affordable fuel oil delivery call Henry oil today fuel oil diesel gasoline delivery it's Henry oil residential commercial fuel oil delivery since 1947 they also have budget plans service contracts lack lock and cap pricing you can depend on henry oil call them today 401-521-0200 serving most of rhode island in southeastern mass we got a long way to go with winter make sure that tank is filled call henry oil today 401-521-0200 henry oil a local family-run business since 1947 that you can depend on For all your oil needs, call Henry Oil today, 401-521-0200. You're listening to The John DiPietro Show. Well, the disaster continues. Regarding the bridge, with no answers in sight, no end in sight, people have lost complete confidence in the leadership of Rhode Island Governor Dan McKee. So let's play. This is the latest now. East Providence officials still want Governor McKee to ask for emergency declaration. He can't he can't declare an emergency declaration because the bridge has not fallen down. What part of this do these people not understand? Let's pick up some of the coverage with uh, WPRI channel twelve.
8: Councilors made it very clear during that meeting last night that the bridge closure is causing several impacts in East Providence. During the lengthy meeting it was revealed that the City Council had sent a letter to Governor Dan McKee requesting a declaration of emergency in hopes to be given some assistance to the city. They asked the state for a few other requests that have already been done such as compensating their traffic controls that they had to increase due to the bridge closure. Governor McKee recently met with some counselors, the superintendent of schools, the police chief and the mayor to address their concerns after that letter was sent. It was revealed that the school department expressed several issues they are having with buses navigating traffic and even one resignation of a teacher who could no longer be making the drive through the heavy traffic every day. One counselor expressed what his hopes are for the future as heavy traffic continues to plague the city.
5: At some point, whenever this is all done, that the state realizes an obligation to come back to East Providence and repair some of our infrastructure, our streets, sidewalks, curbs, things that are being damaged every day by no fault of any one person, but 18 wheel trucks and traffic uh,
8: coming through in and around East Providence. Now, during that meeting, a spokesperson with the city's police department also discussed some of the ongoing efforts that they have in place to alleviate some traffic throughout the side streets. For now, reporting live at East Providence, Kristen Burnell, 12 News.
0: You know, what's amazing about that is I don't blame that poor teacher. I was unaware of that, that somebody's already resigned, saying, uh, I can't take this anymore. And I don't blame them. It totally throws off your routine notice now when the governor's meeting with these people he's trying to keep everybody in line understand what that is he's just trying to keep everybody hopefully in the pew all singing singing from the same hymn and uh, he's afraid that some individuals may go rogue and start to veer off and then start to criticize him but how much longer is this going to be in the cost? Listen to the latest cost. Delicious.
8: ...material testing and police details for traffic control. This morning, we're also getting a look into text messages between Governor Dan McKee and RIDOT Director Peter Alvedi in the days and weeks following the Washington Bridge breakdown. The messages were released as part of a public records request. The messages show that the two often asked to talk over the phone about the bridge rather than reveal details in text. Meanwhile, during an East Providence City Council meeting last night, councilors said that the bridge closure is causing an echo Economic crisis in East Providence. They also addressed how the bridge closure continues to impact residents.
4: There is a huge ripple effect that is devastating people's lives on a, on a large scale.
8: And out says that initial data shows that the new traffic pattern on 195 West is causing a positive impact on residents who live near the off-ramps in East Providence, but they're still giving one more day to test the study. That's the latest in East Providence this morning. Kristen Bernal, 12
0: News. I believe the cost is 860000 Now, I'm going to defend, and I'm not saying I need to or that it was um, derogatory, but I could understand where Governor McKee and Director Alvedi was saying, why don't we talk? I know some people were saying, well, that way they kind of get around that there's no record of what their conversation was. But, uh, you know, why would you, you know, you don't, you don't text when you can speak and you can get through a conversation much faster if people are, are not texting. So I, I'm going to I'm going to cut them some slack on that. I can't imagine the two of them just going back and forth compared to let's let's have a conversation, but this is I want to remind people, this is all the early stages. This is um this is all just the you know, this is all just the first inning as a matter of fact. So I I believe that people are are still trying to come to grips with especially ground zero is East providence kind of come to grips with what has happened and how much this is going to impact them so and the cost to the state is just beginning and and i want to, this business that the federal government always comes in and they're going to bail everybody out i i see no evidence of that now i want to go back to this so the bridge closure has already cost close to one million dollars and this is just you know the beginning now let's pick up again channel 12 here we go 12
3: news reporter kayla fish joins us from east providence with the latest kayla well shannon after repeated requests for information from target 12 a RIDOT spokesperson revealed that the closure of part of the washington bridge has cost the state more than three quarters of a million dollars so far and that's an open tab that's far from being closed $860,000. That's how much the Rhode Island Department of Transportation says the Washington bridge closure has cost the state. That estimate as of February 2nd includes costs for bridge inspections and in-depth examinations, material testing, and police details for traffic control. Those police details like the one seen each night in East Providence costing the state almost 85000 alone. But it's not just the state bearing the financial brunt of the closure.
6: It's an economic crisis in the city.
3: The impact also being felt by East Providence business owners. Tuesday night, city councilors got an update from the Small Business Administration, which has received more than 110 applications for emergency loans from businesses impacted by the closure. Only two have been approved so far, but a spokesperson for the SBA cautioned that it's a slow process. I'd like to give the businesses in our community some reassurance that we, there is diligence and urgency in their needs. Counselors also addressed the hardship being felt by residents. There is a huge ripple effect that is devastating people's lives on, on
4: a large scale.
3: Now, we also have an update on the new traffic pattern on 195 West that was implemented by the DOT late last week. Initial data from RIDOT shows that the change has had a positive impact on those who live here in East Providence near some of the on-ramps for the highway. RIDOT says they plan to keep that traffic pattern in place for at least another day to keep studying it. We're live in East Providence tonight. I'm Kayla Fish, 12 News.
0: Well, the I mean, I think the bottom line is there's, there's just no way out of this. They can try different patterns, try to uh, <clears throat> somehow amuse the, the residents, but I just don't think there's there's any way out of this. You're listening to The John DePietro Show. Propane Plus. Call them today. Heating and cooling in Rhode Island, 401-885-4209 in Massachusetts, 508 508- 252-3359 for propane plus three generations you can always depend on propane plus for all your heating and cooling call them today 401-885-4209 three generations they're available 24 7 for service and delivery and they're going to serve you for a very long time they have a great user-friendly website you just log on at propaneplus.com and then you type in your zip code residential commercial propane plus heating and cooling always there for you give them a call today in rhode island 401-885-4209 in massachusetts 508-252-3359 the johnson family three generations heating and cooling you can always depend on propane plus you're listening to the john DePietro show well folks the uh, story we broke sunday night and then we had a first on monday uh the rest of the local media have now joined us in this story i'm talking about of course this situation of what happened with this lunatic trying a uh, carjacking and also home invasion right there in east greenwich and it was random and it was sunday morning and the guy had a knife and he first tried to carjack somebody in their garage clearly on drugs and it, it, the only reason this individual this drug crazed individual was stopped was because of legal home gun owners homeowners who were also um had had weapons otherwise this could have gone much differently so i think it's interesting that the media was kind of slow to pick up on it i do want to hear how they eventually got around to the story i i get the feeling that a lot of people um <clears throat> some of the local media they just didn't like the fact there was this element that the legal gun owners were able to stop this individual this brian johnson of uh New Hampshire, but as I've talked about, what is is so dangerous here is wh- where is all this leading? As Governor McKee is going to legalize illicit drugs, and pretty soon in Rhode Island, you won't get arrested. You can have heroin, you can have meth, you can have uh, crack. Well, really, you could have anything: crack, cocaine. Um, Governor McKee wants rhode island to be the first new england state that is legalizing all these illicit drugs and so the the problem is you're going to hear more stories like this of these individuals looking for money looking for drugs randomly breaking in again the guy had a had a knife it was the homeowners that were able to essentially contain him And then, you know, obviously then they had called 911 and the police got involved and then the police were able to subdue this individual. But it certainly could have gone a different way. Um, It could have gone a much, much different way. And again, I'm going to, I don't see the benefit that Governor McKee sees in making Rhode Island the first state in New England that's going to uh legalize these illicit drugs so i think it's a very dangerous situation that the governor's putting in i do want to hear both now um channel 10 and in um channel 12 they did both then finally do the story but not exactly sure what the delay was <clears throat> other than maybe it goes against the narrative because it was the legal gun owners that were able to stop this individual so and have him detained who knows where this this would have gone and and what if they weren't armed and you know we we don't exactly have a handle on where this thing could have gone but again first reported on DePetro.com, and we broke the story sunday night and then we had more details on monday so I want to listen to, um, okay, here's the Channel 12 story regarding this situation.
9: Early Sunday morning, basically police were already responding to one case when they got the call for another. This is 30-year-old Brian Johnson. He's accused of trying to steal one person's car and then trying to break into a home about an hour later, all while allegedly carrying a knife and causing chaos. It starts on Justin Road. That's right off of Division Street in East Greenwich. Early Sunday morning, a man calls police, saying a suspect had just followed him into his garage with a knife, demanding to take the victim's car. But that's when the homeowner acts fast. He had a gun on him concealed in an ankle holster. According to the East Greenwich Police report, the victim gets the gun out and points it at the suspect. Johnson then runs away. At some point, the weapon accidentally goes off, but no one is hit. A manhunt now begins. In between the two 911 calls, several police agencies are searching for that suspect here in this area, including Rhode Island State Police, West Greenwich Police, and North Kingstown Police. Authorities get their biggest clue when a call comes in from a home on Town Road. The homeowner there says a man who's bleeding is outside holding a rock demanding to come in. Once again, the victim has a gun and tells the dispatcher on the phone he has the suspect at gunpoint. East Greenwich police arrive on scene. Soon, the suspect, once again identified as Johnson, forces his way inside, shattering a glass door. And after several intense moments, Johnson is taken into custody. Investigators say he refused to answer any questions once he was at the hospital to get checked out. And once again, all of this information is based off of a police report we were sent by East Greenwich Police. And according to court documents, Johnson is facing several different charges. He'll be back in a courtroom in May. Reporting live in East Greenwich tonight, I'm Sheena Loschuto, 12 News.
0: As first reported by DiPietro.com. Folks, you're listening to The John DiPietro Show. A great time is waiting for you at the Coesit Inn, Rhode Island tradition since 1977, 226 Coesit Avenue, West Warwick. They have a large dining room, perfect, maybe a a group, uh, maybe a collation, lunch. The Coesit Inn, getting a big group together or maybe just you alone or a date. 226 Coesit Avenue, West Warwick, great staff, terrific food. They're always working on the menu. And they also have a nice lounge as well. You have the market at Cohesit right there. They're open seven days a week. I'll see you for a great meal. Make it the Cohesit Inn. Do you need a good plumber? I found the best plumber. JMB Plumbing. Call them today. All your plumbing needs four oh one. 743-9153. JMB Plumbing. They've been providing plumbing services for years. Skilled professionals stand behind their work. Guarantee you will be happy. Maybe it's repairing damaged water pipes. Repair clogged pipelines. Maybe replace a, a water heater. As well as all your plumbing needs. Call them now. It's JMB Plumbing. 401 743 9153 nothing throws off your life or your home or your business when you need plumbing service you need someone reliable someone who's professional someone will handle the job and do it right it's jmb plumbing call them today 401-743-9153 jmb plumbing and look for them on facebook Joining us right now, he is the Rhode Island Secretary of State. is uh, Secretary Greg Amore. Mr. Secretary, first of all, thank you for taking the time. um, My pleasure. I'd like to start. What I think is interesting about voting, and this is something that you've inherited, um, but all states have different rules and regulations on how they operate. So I have found that that can be confusing for people because, you know, people watch various, whether it's news programs, films, what have you, and and they have an idea of what it's like in one state, it doesn't mean another state. What I'd like to try to clarify is Rhode Island's laws or rules, regulations regarding mail ballots. And it's it is certainly, and you tell us, but it's dramatically changed as a result of 2020 and then going forward. So if we could just start off with this process of how there are so many quote mail ballots out there, even though I don't know how many people are actually mailing them they, they seem to be using the drop boxes. But if you could at least just start with that.
7: So, so there's some
0: significant changes, but
7: uh, a mail ballot has been accessible uh, without excuse uh, since 2011. Um, so that's not new. Um, what is new is Uh, There is no longer a requirement for a notary witness or another witness. Um, What is new is that um, you can apply for that mail ballot online through our office, Um, as long as you have a a current uh, ID, uh, Rhode Island driver's license, Rhode Island state ID. Um, And what is new is in 2020, um, mail ballot applications were sent to every Rhode Island registered voter. Um, that, that is no longer the case. We are not sending um, um, applications to any voters. They, they have to either apply uh, at their city or town hall or go through our online process. Um, again, the, the biggest change there is that no longer are, is there a witness uh, signature required. And that kind of uh, puts us in line with the vast majority of states. Al, and, and, and to tell you the truth, John, I, antici- I anticipated that the mail ballot voting percentage would continue to rise, and it has not. Um, since, since the pandemic ended, um, it, it has kind of come back down. We have more Rhode Islanders voting in person on election day and early voting uh, than we do
0: uh, by mail. I want to also clarify where we may be, Mr. Secretary, in line to neighboring states. And you tell me whether or not it could be could be wrong. It's it's tough sometimes to find even a lot of accurate information on this because every state <clears> operates differently. But it's my understanding that in Rhode Island, <clears throat> um, or let's just say Connecticut, Massachusetts, it's limited to that. Maybe I want to gather all the ballots for people members of my family. Maybe I want to gather ballots people in my neighborhood. But there's a limit that I can't um, produce or you know deliver. More than ten ballots. In it's my understanding in Rhode Island, it's unlimited compared to Mass and Connecticut that limit it at ten. Yeah,
7: so I know Connecticut is limited at ten. Um, I'm I'm not sure on Mass, to tell you the truth. Um, but but yes, Rhode Island does not have a limit. Um, and the idea is that you may I, I think in in Connecticut it's restricted to uh, immediate family members. Um, or someone that is living with you, domiciled with you. Um, so Rhode Island doesn't restrict that, uh, acknowledging the fact that there are many people who don't have someone like that, um, who could not uh, identify a person, um, but may have a, a neighbor that was willing to do that. And even if it is a, a campaign operative, as long as that, that, that ballot is sealed, um, we're, we're gonna go and check the signature against the signature that is uh, in the DMV file or from the voter registration file, and we're going to make sure that the barcode on that matches the barcode from the request. So as long as that ballot is sealed, uh, no matter who is is putting it in the mailbox or delivering it to the uh, to the city or town hall or putting it in the drop box, you know we're pretty confident that the uh, signature matching and the process to get the mail ballot secures that ballot. Uh, but I do know that many states have different. Um, different rules around uh, ballot gathering. And I, I, think so, I think some of them are, are frankly, difficult to enforce. Um, I, I don't know how you could enforce those rules across the board. Now, our drop boxes here in Rhode Island are monitored. They're under video surveillance uh, when they're being used, but a U.S. mailbox is not. Um, and that is still a, a way that many, many Americans Deliver their mail ballot. So I think I think enforcement is difficult there, and I think when those rules and regulations and the law were being discussed, I think uh, they were erring on the side of making sure that someone who was alone, someone who was disabled, someone who had issues but did not have immediate family members, could still get their uh,
0: ballot delivered. Now you said so our drop boxes are monitored, and 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 why is that? If 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 someone can deliver. In theory, someone could pull up and drop off five hundred. Could drop off a thousand, or could drop off one. Why are they monitored? So
7: we don't want anybody to damage those boxes. We don't want anybody to put a foreign element in those boxes. We want to make sure that those boxes are secure. We don't. Want to, we want to make sure that someone is not trying to tip it over or do anything that would damage the box or try to get at the ballots, uh, for sure. Um, but, but even if someone were to deliver 100 ballots, let's say, we're going to go through the process of comparing that ballot, the signature on that envelope to the signature that's on file. And that, that's a public process at the board of elections. That's not our office. As you know, that's the board of elections and that's a public process. And there's a large screen that brings up the signature from the DMV, brings up a signature from the application, brings up a signature from the. From the um, the original uh, uh, registration, and two folks sit there and analyze that signature. They both have to degre- have to agree. They're not both Democrats. They're either unaffiliated, one Democrat, one a Republican, and they both have to agree. If they don't agree, that ballot is not accepted. All right. So so what then happens is the voter is contacted, and it's called ballot curing, and the voter then has to prove who they are before that ballot will be
0: counted and I want to clarify, it's my understanding, you tell me I, I could be wrong, but an X is regarded as an acceptable signature.
7: So so
0: right now, that is the case. There, there is legislation that is being
7: promoted by the Board of Elections uh, that would change that, um, and, and the Board of Elections, and we're we supporting that legislation that would change that so that someone who is disabled uh, would have someone, and, and again, the the regulations and the rules would have to be written around this. They would have someone that would witness and sign for them, and they would be on the list as that person's aide, the person helping that person vote. Um, so so that is there is a a there is a, a, an existing law that allows an X based on someone who is disabled. But as I said, the Board of Elections is exploring a change to that to make that more secure.
0: We have um, supported that change. Um, this could be a Board of Elections question, Mr. Secretary, but... Is there a number or percentage of those ballots that are routinely tossed out? For instance, and, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but in 2022, do we know, granted you were not in office, how, how many ballots end up actually in that scenario where they're being examined and then they're tossed out or challenged?
7: That, that is a Board of Elections question, but I can tell you that I have witnessed the
0: process And in the, I don't know, hour
7: that I spent there looking at that process, there were a few that were not accepted. Um, And to me, with the naked eye not having been trained, as those folks are in signature verification, it was pretty clear to me uh, that there was an issue. Uh, And again, sometimes somebody may have had a stroke and that signature has changed. And that's why there's the cure process so that that person can come in and say, I had a stroke. I'd like to establish a new signature. Here's my identification.
0: This is who I am. I'm going to follow up with you on only because I believe Massachusetts is also in line with Connecticut. So it kind of puts us our two neighboring states limited 10 Rhode Island is is unlimited. I'm curious your thought on we saw this in in 2022 and I I could be wrong. I think it's kind of a new dynamic but you had candidates that one day of voting but then they lost the election due to The then, you know, the mail ballots, so to speak, that were were tallied in Um, I'm unfamiliar that that has happened in the past, but just three high profile examples. The Helena folks, Governor McKee, he she one day of voting lost to him in the mail ballots. Alan Fung one day of voting lost in the mail ballots and Aaron Gukian one day of voting lost the mail ballots ballots to the lieutenant governor.
7: Well, I think they lost in the
0: mail ballot and
7: early voting combined. So it was not just mail ballots. It was it was the, the, the early process, the 20-day process, not including weekends. It was that and the mail ballots combined where they lost uh, the election. Election day, they, they won the day. So that is accurate, but it wasn't just on mail ballots. That was also early in person. Okay. And early in person is exactly the same as same day voting. And you know I'm a baseball guy. So five runs in the first inning
0: is the same as five runs in the ninth inning. Yep. And, and is there what is the process that if someone did participate, either a mail ballot or early voting, what if if that person went to then go vote on Election Day? They, they, they wouldn't. They'd be uh, in the system as having already voted
7: or having already requested a mail ballot. Um, and then if they are protesting that and say, well, that's not the case they'll be allowed uh, to vote a provisional ballot that will not be counted, and then the investigation will pursue as to where that mail ballot application was, where the mail ballot was, if they voted, and then that'll be clarified, and either that provisional ballot will not be counted or it will be counted because there was a snafo in the process.
0: Could you see, Mr. Secretary, a um, scenario where we shorten the length of time for early voting? We, we saw it you know, a lot of people are talking about it, especially drew attention last late summer, uh, the the Democrat, the CD1 primary, we had someone was doing okay, but then dropped out. Um, Could you see a scenario where they shorten the early voting? It's been talked about. I know there are legislative proposals
7: uh, to do that. Um, I, I would say, you know, for this next presidential election, which I think is going to be a high turnout election. I think, I don't think there's terrible excitement around it, but I think there'll be high participation uh, around it. Um, I, I would like to keep the, the date intact because it takes so much pressure off our folks at the polling locations on the same day. Uh, just, just that th- those first five days take that pressure off so there are no lines and there's no, there's no tension uh, that would exist if there were long lines. But with that said, I, I do think there's probably a, a, a time where we can discuss a shorter period. But I would say that shorter period should include a weekend day. Um, I, I think when, when, if we do condense that period, there should be a weekend day so that we can serve. You know, Rhode Island is a service industry state, right? So it's very difficult for some people to vote on election day. And if, and if there are long lines, you know, someone who may have a little time before they have to drop their child off at daycare or go back to work and they're working an hourly wage job, we wanna make sure that's accessible to them and that's kind of my focus. But we also wanna make sure the system is secure. And anywhere where we see that there's an issue, we will try to make the system more secure. And I know you're aware of our proposal on the signature verification and the process in the nomination papers, which we I was very vocal about early on that I said the Board of Elections had the power to review in real time. And so we've proposed legislation that would clarify that they can review in real time and that they must identify the issue and the collector to the other 38 or 37 or 36 cities and towns. And you saw that play out, even though it's not law yet and not regulation, you saw that play out with the Ramaswamy signatures. And that's exactly yes. how it worked. Uh, the board of elections saw it, they identified it, they checked in real time, and they identified the issue to the other cities and towns based on the the signatures and the people that collected them.
0: And th- that was an outside agency that, that collected the You mentioned, signatures. and it is a... Um... A campaign, you said, or a ballot could be collected by a campaign operative. Now, in the CD one primary this past summer, there was uh, one of the candidates that finished. You know, there were a lot of candidates in the race, and this particular. Anna Kasadis. Anna Kasadis. She finished seventh. Correct. I get this question all the time. She finished
7: seventh, and she had more mail ballot votes than in-person votes. Correct. Right. So, so first of all, she finished seventh.
0: Especially, it's my understanding her her operative is someone that also happens to be an elected official who sits on the Council. Oh, I'm not aware of that. Yeah. I'm not uh, aware of
7: that. I know know this because I've been asked this question time and again. So my first answer to this question would be, I don't know who that person is, uh, so I can't speak to that. But I would say if that's a strategy, it didn't work. Uh, When you finish seventh in a field of 12, that's not very effective. Um, And secondly, I would say because of that, district. And I ran statewide, so I know what that polling place looks like. There's not a lot of turnout there. And that particular candidate did not have a lot of money. So my guess is that the the way they decided to run that campaign was to uh, focus on mail ballots because you can track those, as you know, right? You know if somebody's requested one, you know if they've turned them in, and then you can kind of focus your attention. But I'd say that is only effective in a very small turnout localized race. I do not think that's effective in a broad race and I don't think there's anything wrong with it as a strategy. I think uh, people use that as a strategy. Um, I can't speak to who was collecting and what the issues were around that. I do know uh, that if it's an emergency mail ballot, you know, that person has to identify who they are and what campaign they're with and how many of those emergency mail ballots they're dealing with and that's part of existing law.
0: One, One final question and I want to clarify it. Is it legal in Rhode Island, if someone's running for office and they tell a campaign operative, uh, someone working on the campaign, I will pay you a certain amount of money per uh, mail ballot that you collect. So so is that specifically illegal? Correct. Uh, you know, if someone you know would I'm operate sure. that way, would they be violating anything? I'm not
7: sure. I, I think that campaigns pay uh, operatives, period. To work for their campaign and what those uh, operatives or what those campaign employees are doing uh, is vast. I know that people get paid to collect signatures. We saw that, right? We've seen that, we've witnessed that. Correct. Um, And and they do get paid in some cases by the signature. Uh, We've seen that. I think that was the case actually in the Ramaswamy case. Um, In regard to a campaign operative picking up a ballot, um, I've never heard of somebody paying for that. And I don't know uh, the legality around that, but I do know. Um, that the the bill that was passed, the Let Rhode Island Vote Act, pulls campaign operatives out of this process by not allowing a notary signature, right? You know this, uh, a lot of campaigns were hiring notaries and those notaries would go and meet with that person and witness that signature. Well, that's putting the campaign right in the room. And so that's why I think that that part of Let Rhode Island Vote was smart because it pulls the campaign out. You know, do, do I want that to happen? No, I don't want that to happen. But the reality is, we're still going to check the process. We're going to check those signatures. We're going to make sure the barcode is there. We're going to make sure that uh, that matches up with what was applied.
0: Applied for. Folks, again, he is uh, Rhode Island Secretary of State Greg Amore. and Mr. Secretary, appreciate the time. Great to talk to you, and I hope this is a first of many conversations.
7: Thanks, John. Have a good day.
0: Okay. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Take care. Check out tipetro.com, D-E-P-E-T-R-O.com. All our links to social media, exclusive stories and videos waiting for you at tepetro.com. When it comes to insurance, you need a neighbor, a partner, and friend. You need Shopper Insurance Agency. They're located right on Reservoir Avenue in Cranston. Call today. Free consultation. 401-900-INSU. 401 900 4678 Shopper Insurance SIA. Stephen, very experienced, whether it's auto, home, renters, business insurance, flood, recreational, umbrella, any other protection for your assets, Rhode Island of Massachusetts. Shopper Insurance Agency, your agency of choice. Call today, set up a meeting. They're so knowledgeable can have everything under one roof call Shapa insurance today 401-900-INSU or 401-900-4678 look for them on Facebook again located Reservoir Avenue in Cranston Shoppa insurance agency your neighbor your partner your friend one-stop insurance solutions You're listening to The John DiPietro Show. Folks, I always tout our website just because it has exclusive stories and video. It has links to on-the-scene live stream. Remember, there's no uh, vowel I. It's d-e-p-t-r-o.com. DiPietro.com. You can also reach me that way if you'd like to get in touch with me. DiPietro.com. Log on and then links to Facebook and YouTube, everything we have. It's all waiting for you right there at the website. For all your tree needs, call Yankee Tree today. The tree trimming experts in Lincoln call Yankee Tree at 401-439-6028. Whether it's tree removal, stump grinding, tree pruning emergency service bucket truck service even bobcat service you can depend on yankee tree remember 24 7 emergency services available they are fully insured licensed arborists. yankee tree with all these storms don't let some dangerous branches fall onto your home or business call yankee tree today 401-439-6028 the tree trimming experts in lincoln You can depend on Yankee Tree Service. Call them, 401-439-6028. Free quote, 24-7 emergency service, Yankee Tree Service. There when you need them, 401-439-6028. Check out tapetro.com, D-E-P-E-T-R-O.com. All our links to social media, exclusive stories and videos waiting for you at Topetro.com.